You are Locked On AFL, your daily AFL podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome to Locked On AFL. I'm your host, Kane Pittman. Particularly with a pathetic effort from Pitt. I mean, it was the most disgraceful display I've ever seen from a big film. That's pretty hard on an individual, but he's going to have to live with that. And alongside me, yes, he has showed up to work. It's Josh Lloyd. Lloyd is Lloyd. Lloyd to Lloyd. 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 Kane, it was an interesting weekend of footy. It was strange they didn't play a game on Friday night, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I only saw the final three quarters, actually. And uh, I, I did, when we've got our rundown sheet here, I did put under pressure uh, first up. So I, I don't know right off the bat if you just want to hit the music. Yeah, bang it. So the Locked On AFL Cup, first edition of the Locked On AFL Cup Friday night. And at quarter time, I got to tell you, the Cats were trailing 39 to 3. And I was already thinking of what kind of excuse I could come up with not to pod today because I could probably stomach a loss. If they, if the Cats had have lost, I probably would have been able to handle it. But if they had got blown out by 10, 12 goals or even more, then I, I'm not sure I would have been able to be here today. Uh, unfortunately, uh, for, for you, it didn't, it didn't work out that way. But... Holy shit, this was some kind of start. Yeah, the Bulldogs, and I, I talked about this last week, saying that when they're on, like, who, is there any team that's better to watch? Because it, it, the ball was just flying around. Like, they were at nine scoring shots in the first quarter. Kicked six goals, three. They were all over the place. They were, you know, backwards handballs, spotting guys up. There was just opportunities everywhere. And then it wasn't so good after that. Um, I don't know how much of an impact this made, but losing two guys... Uh, in Latham Vandermeer and Ethan Wood, uh, Easton Wood to injury. Yeah, relatively early on, uh, Vandermeer played 11% of the game, Wood only 39%. Uh, it does make it hard, and you could see, especially in that last quarter, the fatigue was really uh, really kicking in as the Cats piled on five goals to two in that one to take the lead and, and get the win. But uh, I'm not you know, not trying to make complete excuses because there are other players who were completely down in that game as well with you know Wallace, Bruce, and Dixon, your forwards, barely touching the ball. Uh, makes it hard to, to get the win, but I think that injury may have uh, those injuries may have at least stifled some of that run, which was so dominant in the first quarter. Yeah, the Cats just couldn't get their hands in the first quarter, get their hands on the ball in the first quarter, and it was interesting because clearly, and you saw it from the first set of bounce, the Bulldogs did have a greater hunger, a greater appetite for finding the footy. I think it was very clear to see. 25 of their 39 points in the first quarter came off turnovers, and I watched the first quarter again just to make sure what I was seeing was accurate. But three of the goals that they kicked in that quarter were off completely unforced turnovers from Geelong. It was really strange because uh, we've spoke about the Cats and organization is how they win games of footy. And they are by far the most organized team in the league With you, when you look at the way they defend and the way they move the footy. And they were just, comp- I, I, don't know, I don't know what happened. I mean, cer- certainly credit to the Bulldogs in the first quarter, but Geelong didn't seem like they showed up with uh, that same intensity that they've been showing over the last sort of seven, eight, nine rounds of footy. And you were able to tell, uh, injuries aside for the Bulldogs, you were able to tell very early in the second quarter in this game that the Cats uh, got their organization back. They were organized, they were moving the ball slowly, they were getting numbers back in defense. It wasn't that free-flowing movement. And the Dogs, as we've seen other teams against Geelong in recent times, began to turn the ball over a little bit and struggled to find that space and try and find that run and get those opportunities up forward. 
Yeah, that game, it really changed. The the momentum of the game changed, but the speed of the game. Geelong just made things so slow and so methodical versus the Bulldogs, who are methodical in their own way when things are going, but it's done at a frenetic tempo and things just got completely slowed down and that movement which the Bulldogs and the speed at which they can do things catches other teams off guard when they have to move slower. They don't have that same yeah, insightful ball movement because they work at that higher tempo and it works for them and it confuses other teams. But when things get brought back to others' level, then it, it does uh, it does slow down things quite a bit. So that was it was frustrating to be up that much. And I think, all right, this is it. We're, we've, got a, we've got a pretty good chance here of finals now, a good win over a, a top four, top three team. And then it just, you could just see it fading and fading away as Geelong just kept getting uh, getting on top yeah, right throughout the game. And I thought uh, I thought Gary Rowan was really important for this mm. for this team. Like he's not a guy that gets a ton of the ball, but especially in that last quarter or last half, he was just massive with with uh, efforts, uh, with forward pressure, with you know, midfield pressure, with you know, knock ons and spacing, and he just was so important. For for this um, Geelong team, and you, know, you have a look at you know, Super Coach points aren't the be all and end all, but he was second on the team in Super Coach points, and he had ten touches. Yeah, Gary Rowan, and this is where I think it's interesting for the Cats, particularly now that Reece Stanley has been staying healthy. Lockie Henderson has come into the team, which has released uh, Mark Blitzabs a little bit, and you've heard me speak before, as have the listeners. My thoughts on taking Mark Blitzabs out of full back. But it's kind of working for him at the moment. And Gary Rowan is essentially plays as a second tall because I thought there were so many opportunities where he almost took a mark as well. And he's generally got pretty good hands. So this was a game where it didn't all come together with him in terms of taking those grabs. But he's playing as that second tall, which I think makes it difficult for Isava Radicalia to come back into the team, a guy who we thought at the start of the year was going to be a lock uh, to play all year. But I agree. I mean, Gary Rowan, his explosiveness... And his chase downs, whether it's from a kick in. I mean, some of the times you see him chase down a guy that you don't think he's got any chance of, of getting to the player. And he just throws his whole body into uh, spoiling the ball. We saw, obviously, a big tackle on Tim English and then uh, another one out of a kick in. I, I don't know. It might have been Gardner, I think, that had the ball and ended up turning it over. It's just pressure. He's a, he's a great pressure forward, but he also plays tall as well. The one thing I had to ask you, Josh, and uh, only because we've spoken about it so much this year, it was interesting post-game listening to Beveridge talk about the ruck situation for the Bulldogs. This has been a talking point all season long. The Cats were plus 36 in hitouts, which doesn't really matter because the Bulldogs essentially have given up on hitouts this year. But they were minus eight in the clearances, minus six around the stoppage. And the reason for that is because they were basically just saying Josh Dunkley, and this isn't new, they've done this for, for a while now, but Josh Dunkley will play as a ruckman around the ground. I just think, I know that you look at the clearance numbers, but when I was watching that game on the weekend and the Cats had all the momentum and they were controlling the footy and they were controlling the contested possession, I was looking at that and I'm saying, well, you can tell me that you want to win the clearances and that uh, you don't value hitouts, which the dogs can't. I don't think they have too many other options. I think that also hurts them right now. But it, it was it was just giving the Cats a free pass. It, it, they could do whatever they want around the clearances and you can try and shark the taps but the reality is the team in control that 100% of the time basically knows they're going to get a clean hit out, they got an advantage. 
Well, it did work last week because Braden Proust just kept hitting it to the Bulldogs when he was getting those uh, free opportunities. And you're right, hitouts don't mean anything as long as unless clearances go along with them. But they did go along with them in this game, and it wasn't because there was a lack of a ruckman in this game because Tim English played. I don't know why over the last two weeks they haven't been using him in the ruck. I think that, well, I think I know that in the Adelaide game at the end he hurt his ankle and there was doubt that he was going to play against Melbourne. So I'm under the impression that he's just not right to do that. That's why they're playing him up forward so much. He can't run. Because even his advantage is being a guy that when he gets his hand on the ball, he's a really good hit out to advantage player, but he's also able to dominate through the midfield and run that Ruckman around. And now they're just sitting him down in the forward line and maybe take a grab to him. Like, I just think that the ankle is not right. And I think that's part of why they're doing it because there are situations when English and Dunkley are standing next to each other and Dunkley goes and takes the Ruck down in the forward line. And that doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think if his ankle's not right, they just need to sit him out, bring in Jordan Sweet, bring in Jackson Trengove to have a crack just to, to be that other guy in there. Because if English isn't actually fit, then I'm not sure what the point of it is. He's taken on a big load this year. There's no doubt about that. And particularly through the footy frenzy or the festival of footy, whatever you want to call it, with the games being so compacted, it's tough. It's tough for a young big man. We spoke at the start of the season, and I, I said to you when we were talking about how well he played in a couple of those games that there's going to be ups and downs because he's going through and expected to to be this guy. And he plays one good game, and everyone wants to talk about, oh, he's the next uh, Max Gorn. It's like, just chill out a little bit. Give this some Give, give this guy some time. And I think we have seen fatigue catch up with him a little bit. Just one last one from this game, unless you've got anything else to throw uh, at, me, at me about the Cats and the Bulldogs on Friday night. Mitch Wallace, and this is, again, another scalp for the Cats' back line. I mean, we spoke about the job they did on Dan Butler against St. Kilda, Charlie Dixon against Port Adelaide. They seem to be able to identify a really, really dangerous player and completely take them out of the game. This time it was Jake Collajasny on Mitch Wallace, but six disposals, zero goals. Uh, we haven't seen a, a game like that from Mitch Wallace virtually all season. Yeah, he wasn't at that same impactful level. He wasn't able to create that space to take those grabs. Like he still had four score involvements from his six possessions, so he was still doing little bits and pieces, but he was a guy that was top 20 in the league in score involvement. So you're looking at a 7-8 a game he was putting up, and he was kicking goals, and he just couldn't get... Uh, that sort of impact in this game because they they made that effort to to make sure that he didn't do that didn't didn't have a scoring shot in this game and that, that's a big thing and as I said yeah when you bring Tory Dixon in to be that other small forward and he barely touches it Josh Bruce barely gets a hand on it as well your whole forward line sort of underperforming when Wallace has been that one sort of steady option it it did make it hard especially after after quarter time to get anything going and that's credit to Geelong's backline for working that out and getting the exact plan that they needed to to keep Mitch from uh, being a scoreboard impact player. So that's one for me. I'm up one zip in this ongoing uh, competition. Now, I, I don't want to... The reason why I'm not going over the top here and saying too much is because my projections that I've done last night, my ladder predictor, I've still got the Cats missing the top four and there is a mathematical chance that the dogs can finish eighth. So I'm not going to talk too much oh, yeah. in case we play the dogs again in a few weeks. But how are you feeling? Are the dogs done? Can they can they still squeeze in? Where's your where's your Bulldogs uh, head at right now? Okay, so they've got three games left, and they're on seven wins. So they win all three of them. I think they get in. It looks like nine and percentage is going to be what gets you into the eight. The problem is, is one of those three games is against the Eagles. And that's the yeah. next week, the bye next week, then the Eagles. And it's Hawthorne and Fremantle. And Fremantle's been plucky, but if they want to be in the finals, they need to win those two. So I think they can win those two, get them to nine wins. Uh, it's that Eagles one. And that's why this Geelong game was so important when you had such a big league, because you needed to win one of those Geelong or Eagles games. And now it's you have to win the Eagles game. And I think the odds you'd be looking at under 50% of the Bulldogs making the finals. 
um, unless a whole bunch of teams around them fall over. It's it's yeah, I think they're probably going to be in that ninth spot or you know, missing out uh, by percentage from the finals. Yeah, certainly the Melbourne St Kilda result. We can talk about that game a little bit later. That hurt a bunch of teams that are trying to squeeze in there at the bottom of the eight. But Carlton Collingwood yesterday, this was a huge game. I, I can't actually remember the last time a Carlton Collingwood game had this type of implications riding on it. The Pies clearly have not been playing well the last few weeks, even though they've been managing to just just keep continuing to pick up the wins. They've won four of their last five now after beating the Blues. But for mine, this is, this is more about Carlton again. I mean, we've spoke about them all season long. It's going to be really tough now for them to make the finals six and seven. They are on the season. They've got GWS in just a couple of days' time. I know they've got a bunch of young players in their team, but they've also got a fair bit of experience. I, I was watching this game yesterday, and I'm thinking back to some of the other games that they've been in and just haven't been able to get over the line. Port Adelaide, they just needed a little bit of composure. They would have won that game. Hawthorne, they're up by five goals. This game, they were controlling, completely controlling halfway through the third quarter and didn't put a score on the board. This is, this is a wasted season from Carlton, I think. Um, I, I think that they are ahead of where they were expected to be. I'm not sure that it's a, a wasted season. There's definitely been some wasteful games and games they should have won. The Hawthorne one you know, really stands out. And even this one, you know, when you're up on Collingwood at halftime and then fail to score a goal in the second half, like that's, that's wasteful against a team that you needed to win. I, I still think that you know, they're going to finish in that same area as the Suns and the Dockers. And while you might say the Suns and the Dockers have a little bit of a brighter future, because we talked about this earlier in the season, like we talked about Patrick Cripps, he's like 25, 26. You know, he's not as young as the idea of like, he's just sort of coming through. Like he is in his prime at this point. So there is so obviously a lot of young players there. So I understand your point there. I think that probably next year is the one that internally they would have been targeting as this is the year that we have to make that finals push. Uh, they surprised a lot of people this year with some of their play, but there was always going to be some spottiness and inconsistency, and we've seen that plenty of times. I wouldn't call it a waste. They need to build on it, obviously. They need to push push next season and be that team who's you know, sitting in that you know, fifth to ninth range rather than ninth to 13th, where they you know, currently find themselves. But... There's been enough positives there. You've got to make some smart off-season decisions. Uh, I wouldn't call it a waste. So I think that they have... Well, okay, let me put it to you this way. Do you think they've exceeded expectations? Well, I thought that they were exceeding expectations a few weeks ago. But now I look at the ladder and they're 6-7. and seven, And I think that this team, particularly early in the season, the way that they were playing, are a team that you thought, yeah, this is a team that can be competitive with the better teams they should be playing finals. Like I, I know that the bar isn't high for Carlton and it hasn't been for a long, long time. But I, I just think, I, I look at this team and, and yes, the bottom end is, is young. There's no doubt about that. But when I look at the, the top seven disposal winners on the ground for Carlton yesterday, five of them, uh, these are five names that stand out to me that are in that top seven. And it's not all about disposal winning. I know that. They've got great key position players coming through. But Ed Kerno, Sam Doherty, Mark Murphy, Kate Simpson, Patrick Cripps. So, that a few of those guys are, are very close or certainly close to to tipping over that edge where their best is is beyond them. There's no doubt about that. I just uh, Carlton's got enough experience there that I, I I don't know, maybe maybe through this year, maybe earlier in the season, my expectations were too high. but I think they've just wasted too many games where they just needed a little bit of composure. they 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 aren't they have no ability to slow down a team when they get on the roll. And we saw that the last quarter and a half yesterday. 
They just need to slow down the game a little bit, hold the footy, and play some defensive footy. And this is what's hurt them all season long. I don't know. I mean, I've just been frustrated watching the Blues the last few weeks. Yeah, that's fair enough. But I think if you go back to your preseason expectations of them, you'd probably say they've exceeded them. So they're currently 12th. Um, Would you have had them above Hawthorne, Sydney, North? At the beginning of the season, you probably had Fremantle, Gold Coast, and Adelaide below them, where they currently are. So I think you would, I don't know if you would have had them above Hawthorne or Sydney or, or North even at the beginning of the season. And you look at the teams all above them, Essendon, Bulldogs, Giants, maybe say Melbourne and St. Kilda, they could have, yeah, at the start of the season, you could have made arguments that they would have been ahead of them. But I don't really see anyone out of the 11 teams above them that would have gone, yeah, Carlton's definitely should be better than these teams. But I can see three under them that I think you would have had arguments to say that they wouldn't have been, yeah, favoured to finish ahead of uh, at the beginning of the year. Not at the start of the season, no. But... I think that your expectations change throughout. I think that you know, pre-season expectations, I mean, that feels like a long time ago now. Uh, yeah. Uh, they, they, I mean, they've, they've been impressive. I think that's the point. When you start to get expectations about a team, it means that they're doing something right. Uh, I do just think with the positions they've found themselves in, with the style of footy to play, the attacking footy that they play is really, really good. You start to get expectations that you want them to perform. So I, I think that is saying that the season is, is a waste uh, – probably too critical yeah i mean it probably is but it's also if if you're a carlton fan i mean it means that there's expectations about the team that there simply hasn't been for 20 years or thereabouts so i i don't think overall it's a bad thing for the blues um but yeah i mean i just think if i was a carlton fan i'd be i'd be feeling pretty frustrated this morning i can understand that frustration but i think again you just have to look back and say that yeah that you wouldn't weren't expecting this level of play. It is a surprise to get here and you adjust your expectations, but you have to also be a little bit realistic that some of the hype that they were getting was ridiculous early on in the season. Is this team a, a top four shot? Like, no, of course they're not. Like, let's calm down on some of that stuff. Um, so maybe if you're using that ridiculous hype to base your expectations on, that if you just, again, look back to where you expected them to be and what the hell you experienced with this team last year, I think you should be a little bit happier. But, Kane, there's a team that won this game. And Collingwood did get the win. Your boy Mason Cox kicked a couple. But let's talk about Isaac Quainer, who had his best game of the season after coming back from that, uh, let's call it a laceration, on his leg against Sydney (laughs) a few weeks ago. He had 20 touches, 7 rebound 50s. I I really liked this guy when he was drafted. Loved watching his under-18 highlights back when he was with Oakley a couple of years ago. Um, pick number 13 in the 2018 National Draft. He is establishing, I thought he was starting to establish himself before that injury, but really as a key sort of piece off halfback with some really good decision-making uh, and uh, just great to see him get that big 20 disposal game this week and be an influential player. Yeah, I love him. I, I thought that he was, his return to this team completely changed the look of the Pies because I think at times, and we've spoke about it, the Pies feel pretty one-dimensional when they're moving the footy and i'm not sure that they have the 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 quality skill the quality kickers the quality ball movements in their team from the back line through the midfield into the forward 50 so the thing i love about quainor is yeah he plays across half back but he's that typical modern age 2020 attacking defender he gets a lot of his possessions roaming through the center so he gets to really dangerous positions Despite being a defender, he had three inside 50s in yesterday's game, three score involvements, and six intercept possessions. So he reads the play really well as well. Uh, He's obviously a strong body, but his delivery inside 50, a couple of his kicks, one that stands out to me again 
found the footy in that defensive midfield position of, of the ground, so between defensive 50 and the center circle. Uh, gathered the mark uncontested because he's streaming through. The kick is a good one. That's the one that the Pies need to look for a guy like Quaino and then lace out. Uh, hit Majacek, who went back and kicked a pretty pivotal goal in the fourth quarter. Quainos, uh, he changes the look of this team a little bit. He makes them far more dangerous. It feels like they've got more attacking options than they did uh, last week just by inserting him, and it's it's kind of hard to believe he's played uh, so few games at the level, but uh, he's, he's a good one. He's quality. Yeah, I think he's going to be really, really good. Uh, for for this team in the future, um, so it was impressive to see him get that get that sort of impact going across the weekend. But we also had a couple other things that we wanted to check on or check in on from the weekend. What else we liked from the weekend? I talked about GWS quite a bit, like saying that their run home was pretty straightforward, and they needed to you know, show it against West Coast last week, and they showed a little bit more competitiveness. But they needed to you know, back it up and get the win, and they did that. They yeah, they torched Fremantle here, ninety-one fifty-three in the end. But the big, the big news, I guess, with this team is the play of Jake Riccardi because he has <laughs> come out of nowhere, really, and put up yeah six six goals in two games. So he's taken nineteen grabs in two weeks. One hundred ninety-five centimeter guy who was picked in the third round, pick fifty-one last year's draft as a, as an older guy passed over in drafts previously. Um. And, of course, the controversy about his uh, AFL ratings points uh, over the weekend. He kicked uh, four goals and had, I think, a negative score. He was the lowest-rated player on the ground because of the way that that formula works. There's a lot of controversy. Yeah, scrap the ratings. They're trash. I don't know what they're talking about. That one might have been a little bit of an outlier. But I thought he was super impressive. And, again, the Giants just have this ability to unearth guys. And, you know, I'd go through and you know, look at some all the players that have played for the Giants over the over the stretch, and you go, oh, I don't remember this guy playing games here. Like, you know, Will Setterfield had two games there, and just so many. You remember who remembers Josh Bruce playing for the Giants? Like, these these are guys that played there, and it's just continually bringing guys in, and then they might go on to success at other teams. But they looks like they found another one in Riccardi here. Yeah, he was good against West Coast last week as well in his first game in. He he's been playing as the deeper forward, and I, I think it. It works well for them because we've spoke in the past about the fact that if Toby Green's not that deep option, then they've been struggling to kick goals. But I, I think Riccardi sort of straightened them up a little bit because he gives them a target to kick long to. Jeremy Cameron on the weekend was pushing up the ground a lot more and he was getting his, his possessions up on the wing, up on half forward. And now we're talking about the reigning Coleman medalist here. So, yeah, you would love him kicking goals. But I think Cameron actually found a bit of freedom. He looked to be enjoying getting up the ground more and presenting as a, as a really dangerous target because ball movement for the Giants this year has been uh, not ideal. Let's just say that. At times, they've been too slow. And they haven't felt like they have a target around that half-forward area. So bringing in Riccardi, he's brought the uh, contribution that perhaps a, a Himmelberg has struggled with a little bit over the last sort of five to ten weeks. So Riccardi takes contested marks. He's pretty good on ground level as well. A couple of his goals over the last two weeks have come from those situations. So, again, when we talk about teams that have been struggling for a target inside 50 at times, Melbourne through the year, certainly Collingwood, Riccardi seems to have straightened out this team a little bit. Now, he's only played two games, so it's difficult to to say or to suggest that this is going to be a huge X factor for them through the finals. But remember, he is mature age, and he's played plenty of footy at v, uh, VFL level with Werribee at state league level. So I don't think playing AFL footy and the physicality is going to be a challenge for him. It'll probably be more so teams are now know who he is. And they're looking at this guy and saying, oh, okay, wow, this guy's played a couple of strong games here. Yeah, I think that is that is going to happen because you know, he's, he's not going to take 10, 10 marks a week as he has you know, through the first two games. Yeah. 
that he's played. Um, but again, it's just another impressive option and, and enables Cameron to do more of what he needs to do, almost filling in not quite the, the, the John Patton role from, from years before, um, just being that, that stronger guy down there to, to take some grabs and be that deeper forward, enabling Cameron to go and uh, to go and roam up. But just, we, I didn't want to, I'll touch on what your one was in a sec, but there is some news that has just come through. I don't know if you've seen this, but the AFL is changing the next generation uh, academy draft prospect system. It won't be in play for this draft where the Bulldogs uh, have access to Jamara Ugelhagen, who is potentially the number one pick uh, through their um, academy. And there's a apparently five or six guys that could be top 25 picks from the next-gen system, but it looks like that that will be changed uh, moving forward. They don't know the full details, that any player who goes in the first or second round won't be able to be protected uh, through bidding to to join those next-gen clubs is the idea that they have here to try and make those players, like like a guy like Isaac Quainer that we talked about already, Taron Thomas, Liam, Hen- Liam Henry, those guys who have been high draft picks, who have gone to their clubs through the next-gen, that sort of thing, much like you know Ugo Hagen and, and Downey, uh, Reef McInnes, another one, Lockie Jones this year, they're likely to go high, that that won't be something that happens in the future. Interesting. It's a uh, overly complicated system that I'm not sure my, my head is 100% wrapped around when it comes to the AFL drafts and the, uh, the the guys that you have rights to and protections to and the bidding process. I'm not sure I'm 100% over it, Josh. To be to be totally to be totally honest, I've, just, I've been waiting for Hugo Hagen for the last two years. So I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty I'm pretty excited that it's fair, not getting fair. phased out before this draft because he looks uh, he looks pretty good. So I'm excited that we are almost definitely going to be seeing him play for the Western Bulldogs next year. But that system is going to be changing to guys. And the article I'm reading here mentions guys like uh, Artu Bosanavalagi from Collingwood, who was a next-gen pick, but a later-round pick, that that still would fall under it. Uh, you know, guys like Toby Bedford from Melbourne, there's Buku Kamas from the from the Bulldogs, who was a rookie draft pick as well. Those will come through, but those guys who would have been first or second-round picks anyway, uh, they won't have that level of protection. But that's an aside, something that's just come through. Mm-hmm. The, your, what did you like on the weekend? Uh, I like to, just before I do, just quickly, just to wrap up the GWS stuff, I, I, as much as I've said that Carlton have disappointed, have been frustrating for me to watch the last few weeks, uh, big game this Thursday, GWS and Carlton, both teams still a, a chance to make the final. So as much as I've said that it could, uh, I should say it, should be, it could be potentially a wasted season for the Blues because they can still make the finals and I think they would be dangerous if they get in there. So uh, the, this uh, Thursday, like, what's that? The Steven Silvani Cup. Yeah, exactly. So the, the SOS Cup uh, has got big implications this week. Another big test for the Blues to see if they can win a high-pressure game. But I like Dad Langdon from Melbourne. And you talk about a team that needed to win uh, a game and Melbourne did obviously to stay in the eight. But their form's been up and down for them uh, to beat a, a good team. And remember... They teed off on the pies a couple of weeks ago, but then their form dropped off again the following week. So to beat St. Kilda in a close game as well, I thought it was really impressive. And the guy I love is Ed Langdon because we've spoke about the Demons midfield at times uh, is is a little bit one-dimensional. When you think about Viney, uh, obviously Oliver, Brayshaw, these guys, high-contested footy guys. Uh, they're players that will win the ball around the contest potentially don't have the best skills in the competition. But a guy like Ed Langdon, 
he has been a great acquisition for this team over the over the last year or so. And on the weekend, I thought he was huge in this game. He had another 22 disposals. And his numbers across the year are really good. So this is for a midfield guy that, that always plays attacking footy. He gains a lot of ground. So 450 meters gained in this game against St. Kilda, but 350 plus average on the season. He's inside 50s per game at 3.1 rated as elite. So are his... He's rebound 50 is actually at 1.9. The kicking efficiency of 71.4 is the important one. So if you've got these players that are prepared to run, prepared to take the game on and kick the ball long, you need uh, you need those guys to be able to use the ball well. And Ed Langdon's been a, a nice point of difference for the Demons this year. And on the weekend, I thought he was pivotal because the Demons were sort of caught in two minds. It looked like they weren't sure whether they should attack or go into defensive mode as the Saints you know, probably should have won the game. But Langdon, I, I thought, was one that kept them kept them moving forward and kept them uh, winning that territory battle that they needed to and, and ultimately gave a guy like Pachaka a chance to, to win the damn game. He went from a situation in Fremantle where he was getting a lot of the ball. He averaged 25 touches a game mm-hmm. last year for Fremantle. So in, in this Melbourne midfield, his role is a little bit lesser. Yes, we're accounting for... Um, the change in quarter length here, but he's averaging under 20 a game. But what's most important is he's gone from a 70% disposal efficiency guy up to 78%. And -hmm. that was a criticism of him earlier in the season. And from me, I was criticizing him for not being able to hit those targets. But getting to 78% is important. And he is getting a lot of uncontested ball. He's at like almost a 75% uncontested ratio versus contested. And that's that that point of difference that we did talk about, like who's on the outside and if the guy on the outside, can they use it? And we highlighted Salem as that player to get the ball into his hands to, to use it. But yeah, Langdon is developing, especially re- recently. The last few games, he's been yeah, a lot better, I think, in terms of his... In terms of his efficiency in getting that ball on the outside, and yeah, he was big again in this game, which they desperately needed to win, and yeah, I desperately didn't want them to win, but they uh, but they got the victory, and he was a key part of it. Well, he's only had seventeen total clearances for the season. He's, yeah. He rates below average in clearances, one point three per game, but that's okay. That's that's totally fine. That's not his role. They've got enough clearance winners in this Melbourne midfield, uh, both at the centre Browns and around the stoppages, that he doesn't need to be that guy. Hang out on the outside, be that uncontested uh, footy winner because they they don't have enough of them. So I, I agree exactly with what you just said. Those numbers, I think, are, are what you want to see from Langdon. That's what you want. Don't he doesn't need to be getting pushing himself into the contest. Hang outside, get those uncontested footy and pump it down forward because the demons uh, have started to look a little bit more promising up forward as well. I mean, this is a completely different conversation, but Langdon's been a big part of that. Yeah, he has been. Um, uh, You look at some of his numbers and we talk about his efficiency. I'm a little bit not worried that when I I look at his numbers, like he has very, very low score involvement numbers. And for a guy that's getting on the outside, getting these uncontested ball and finishing them at such a pretty strong level, why is he not getting involved in scores? Like I'm looking at where he ranks in the league. Like he's 270th in score involvements per game, under three per game. For a guy that's getting 20 touches per game, that, that seems pretty low. He's down from 4.5 where he was last season. So is that him hitting targets, hitting them, and then the players screwing it up after that? Or is he hitting these targets in positions where the players then can't really do much with it? Like he's, you know, he's going and getting the ball, getting on the outside, hitting the targets. Um, and then they, but is that not leading to good links or to get to scoring? Because that, that's a little bit of a worry to me that that number is as low as it is. He had one goal assist all year. So while 
we can talk him up, and he, he did play well on the weekend. There are some things that are a little bit, I guess, red flaggy in terms of are these somewhat empty numbers? Well, the, the score involvements, as everyone knows, I mean, you, you it's not necessarily you finishing the play. So do they need him finishing the play a little bit more, potentially? If their goal assist number is as low as it, as it is, that's one that stands out. Goal assist more than score involvements because we know that Melbourne moving the ball forward has been a struggle for most of the season and they've been swapping players in and out of the team on the weekend we saw Mitch Brown play who I forgot was even in the AFL anymore obviously he's played at Geelong played at Essendon but he, he was in the Ford 50 for Melbourne in this one so again with score involvements it's it's hard to know I mean his, his efficiency numbers look great his inside 50 numbers even look great so it, it, I'd be curious to have a little bit more of a forensic look at that and see whether it's he's making right decisions and then uh, other guys haven't been able to capitalize on that or whether he at times has been careful with the ball uh, around those entries. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It's uh, it's kind of hard to tell from the raw numbers, which is why, you know, sometimes you have to uh, be a little bit careful when you're you're trying to base a player off uh, pure, purely off raw numbers. Exactly. It, it raises a, a, a question that you've got to then investigate further. And we're not going to investigate further on this podcast because we're done, Kane. That is... Uh, another episode uh, in the books for Locked On AFL. Thank you again for a great show. Uh, credit to you for showing up, Josh. Appreciate it. <laughs> no worries, guys. Don't forget, subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Locked On AFL as well. And today, I'm going to leave you with a shout-out to Scott McGuinness.